If your friends jumped off a cliff, would you follow them? God, I hate that question. All right, let's just jump in. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, some guy named Jimmy, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Turner. And welcome back to the show. We are back with another Wednesday segment. And I'm super excited because we're going to be talking about the hurting mentality. But before we jump in, let's hit up that ever so important disclaimer. This show is not personalized financial advice for you. In fact, this is more for your entertainment purposes and should only be seen as general education. Neither Ryan or me can give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. So if you aren't a do-it-yourself financial guru, you should consult an attorney, CPA, or a fee-only financial planner like Ryan before you go and make any big money decisions. Today's show is about hurting mentality. Ryan, when you hear that term, what does that mean? What exactly do you think about? I immediately think of like all the wildebeest in Africa, like millions of them, just all roaming the herd together. Now, what really we're discussing here is how people can be influenced by their peers and in mass, essentially, to adopt certain behaviors that cause them to act more emotional rather than a rational basis. I mean, you know this. We have some ridiculous examples in our own history of this. You mean like the tulip bulb craze? Oh yeah, let's let's go into the tulip bulb craze. This sounds crazy, but like in this, I think it was 1600s, you know, in the land of the Dutch, they had this time where they... Do they actually say it that way? The land of the Dutch. The land of the Dutch? Yeah, that's, my, that's my movie actor voice. Uh, yeah, okay. so... It, not a side gig for... Yeah, him. no, I'm not getting right. casted for anything anytime soon. <laughs> You're the one in California. Definitely not getting casted. Mm-mm. So in 1600s, tulips were a sign of wealth. And part of the reason why was because they're so fragile that they were really challenging to transport and people had a hard time getting their hands on them. And all of a sudden, people started learning how to do that better and then started realizing that they could transport these things in seeds. But if you bought a seed, it would take like, I don't know, six or 12 years for that to grow into a bulb and then to become a tulip. So if you bought a seed, it took a really long time. And then what eventually ended up happening was people realized, oh, well, we can just sell the bulb. Like Once it turns into a bulb, we can sell that. You can transport it before it becomes a tulip. And it became a thing. And so all of a sudden, everybody wanted a tulip bulb because it was a sign of wealth. And now that they were transportable, you could get one, bring it home and plant it in your place. And now you were wealthy or at least had the appearance of being wealthy. And of course, the trouble with this is that it ended up becoming like this giant craze. Like everybody was obsessed with tulip bulbs because they wanted to have that picture of wealth. And they established this flourishing business of selling tulip bulbs to the extent where the peak of the craze, one tulip bulb was worth an annual income for a skilled crafts worker. So it's worth your entire annual salary because they were you know, worth so much. The financial planner in me just is like, ah, that's nuts. Well, I mean, it sounds crazy, but we, you know, we got modern day examples of this too. I mean, think about like, you know, those pictures you saw of people in court with like beanie babies, like they're like having, you know, their divorce, you know, meeting and in front of a judge and they've got pictures of people like separating beanie babies on the floor. I mean, that's like 15, 20 years ago. I mean, this is, yeah. it's not like it only Crypto. happened. What's that? I'm going to get so many like hated emails, but cryptocurrency, right? Oh yeah. Cryptocurrency. Just go buy some, buy some Bitcoin right now. Oh man. Don't bye, do bye, not, bye. do not go the Bitcoin. Right, just don't do it. But but I I have actually a a friend of mine who is not a planner. He's not a doctor. It's the rare 
one of the friends that I don't have that are one of those. And he works a, a decent job. He makes like 50K a year, but he's super intelligent. And he was super early into Bitcoin. He built his own computers. He does IT for a living. And he built his own like rigs. And this is going to show my ignorance because I don't know what it's all called. But he, he built his own rig and he was mining Bitcoin. And he mined like... He mines Bitcoin. And he mined like 45 Bitcoin. Okay. Which is insane. Now, your eyes are popping out of your head because at the time of recording, like, I don't know, Bitcoin's like, what, nine, 10,000? It probably fluctuated a thousand bucks just in that time I said that. But when he was mining it, Bitcoin was like $3, $4, $5. Like it was, it was nothing. So he ended up having something like, I think, 45 altogether. And when we had been talking and it, and it hits like a thousand, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, that's your almost your whole year's salary, definitely more than your take home. Like, get rid of this. He's like, no, no, no. I believe in it. I'm like, I don't even understand what you believe in, but fine, we'll go with it. It hits two thousand, three thousand. Now he's looking at me like you're an idiot. I've been telling you this whole time, Bitcoin's amazing. And you haven't listened to me one bit, and now we're thirty days later and it's quadrupled. I'm like, yeah, because that's not you know crazy in a bubble. And then it goes up to like what nineteen thousand or eighteen thousand bucks, something insane. And I'm at sixteen or seventeen thousand. I'm going, dude. This you could pay off all your credit card debt. You could pay off your house. You could pay off your uh, like student loans, your auto debt. I mean, he has all this debt that already makes me have anxiety. And I'm like, you could pay all this off, buy a whole nother house if you wanted to, and rent out the one you're in. He's in Vegas. You could do all these great things and have so much more money left over. Just get rid of it, or at least sell enough to get rid of all your debt. He didn't want to do it. So obviously now it's fallen like 50%. He still believes now he's holding on going like, please go back to where it was. He's willing to sell now. Of course, after it's cratered 50%, he still has a lot of money in it. That was kind of a finance one, but there's other ones, right? There's the dot-com bubble with all the tech stocks, right? And for those that don't know a little bit about market history, we won't nerd out on it, but in the late 1990s, all the internet companies were coming out and there was thousands of these companies that were making no money that were highly leveraged that no one even understood half of them on what they were doing or what they were trying to do. The ones that are still around today, like people could genuinely see like, oh, they make computers or they make graphics cards and you could understand it. But the multiples that priced earnings were astronomical and the whole market stretched out. And that's when you saw like the, the NASDAQ at 5,000 at the time was insane. And then we had this huge correction down. Well, everyone was piling in, you know, back then there wasn't Uber and Lyft. It was taxi cab drivers and all sorts of stuff that everyone was talking about. Oh, did you buy this stock? Oh, did you do this? Oh, the market can't lose money is what everyone was saying. They're all piling in that herd mentality Mm -hmm. of all acting in one in unison and just buying without truly understanding. And then all of a sudden everyone woke up and there was a crash. Because everyone wanted to run for the same exit door at the same exact time. Granted, prices were inflated and nuts, but that herd mentality that got them in the market also got them out of the market. If we think about like stock market bubbles and crashes are really caused by herd mentality. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the emotions behind that, I mean, it's kind of complicated, but we've all experienced it, whether you're you know sitting at a poker table right? And you're winning and you're winning and you're winning. You're like, this just has to continue, right? Like it just has to keep going on. And then you start losing. Clearly we haven't played poker together because I don't win at poker. 
Oh yeah, no, yeah. I we can't lie. I'm terrible. <laughs> we should play. I take your buddy. It'd be good. Yeah, no, it sounds horrible. <laughs> but yeah, and so like the same thing happens, and then you start losing. And in poker, the word's called tilt, where you just start making these crazy bets because you basically you know can't handle the losses that you now have, and you just get out. You're just done. You're like, oh no, it's just been so bad. And you know, going back to our you know show on loss aversion, like that explains why because that loss is so painful. But on the way up, we always rationalize that we are so intelligent and so smart, and this time is different. You know, which are, you know someone said is the most famous, you know, dangerous words in personal finance that this time is different. Yeah, that or hold my beer. Yeah, hold my beer. Yeah, you haven't seen nothing yet. Or watch this. These are all like little things that as soon as you, you hear it, you're like, uh-oh. Yeah. Bad things are about to happen. But you know, really what's going on there when you have these bubbles and these crashes is that we have relied on a small fraction of people to get us moving forward in a direction. And what that does is we just go along with the group because if the group thinks that it's true then it must be true. And what that does is it turns off our, our higher faculties. So we essentially just start trusting the group instead of relying on the information that we have and you know the intelligence that is there. It just gets shut off. So we basically just start following the herd. Yeah. And so Jens Cross and John Dyer created this study with the University of Leeds. And Jimmy and I found this just fascinating. They found that in large crowds of 200 people or more, 5% of the group which is 10 people, is enough to influence the direction in which the group travels. So if 10 people are confidently walking south, the 190 people behind them or more will actually follow suit. That is herd mentality at its finest right there. We've all experienced that too, right? You go to a big sporting event or to a concert and people are leaving and they just start heading one direction and Without even a second thought, you just start following them because that's the you know the exit you know you presume to be there. And then we've all you know had that experience. We're like, oh wait, 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 we're supposed to be going the other direction, and like you realize it mid stride when you're like half a mile in the wrong direction. I did that the other day playing golf with buddy. We're just caught up talking, and, and it's just the two of us. But we just kind of kept walking until we got to the wrong tee box, and we're like, oh, like we should have stopped way back there. And uh, whoops, yeah, and it's just because we we turned off those higher faculties and just started kind of following the flow, which was just to keep walking. Yeah, I do that all the time. We go to a conference and I'll be talking to someone and they'll start walking and then we'll look at each other. Where are we going? Well, I don't know. I was following you. Where are you going? I'll speak for the both of us here. From a finance standpoint, I think we're pretty aware of herd mentality, how it affects decisions, the behavioral finance piece of that, but we're not perfect by any means. And I have an example to kind of show even just how flawed my thinking is sometimes around this because it's human behavior. And what we want you guys to hear and get out of this show is that it's okay to know that you're going to make mistakes and you are going to follow the herd in some things and it's natural human behavior. We hopefully will have stopped you from thinking in this herd mentality when it comes to the markets and investing and finance. And we'll slowly keep building this up over time to help you guys feel more comfortable. But the example I had was I was actually just out to dinner with a friend, which uh, a mutual friend, you, you know, this person. And we decide we were walking around downtown San Diego. I'm not like a foodie. Taylor usually handles like where we go to dinner because I don't care where I, where I go really. And there was two options like right in front of us. And there was one that was pretty much empty. And there's another one that was pretty much full. And I'd never been to both of them. I really don't care what I'm going to eat. Like I had no preference. And we sat there and he's like, well, you're from here. Why don't you tell me where to go? And immediately I was like, well, there's no one in that one. The food's probably really bad. Everyone's at this one. The food's probably a lot better. 
which has no basis of anything. There's no scientific fact. I don't know any. I can't even tell you the names of the two restaurants, honestly. But I followed the herd thinking that, well, this one has a lot of people. This one has none. Probably should go to that one because it's probably popular for a reason. Now, there probably is no reason for that. But even, you know, knowing better. And I sat there like that night on the drive home and I started laughing. I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like, I knew that. Like, I totally knew that. Didn't even cross your mind to like check for Google reviews or... No, that would be rational. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. We're, we're talking just purely emotional. That part's turned off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that part's turned off on a lot of things like outside of finance. Like, I'm a go with the flow kind of guy. I'm super mellow on it. But yeah, I just we sat there and, and I literally made that decision based on there was more people here. That probably means it's better for whatever dumbass reason. That was the case. Like, I don't know. So we're not perfect over here, you know, kind of preaching behind the microphones of, you know, hey, don't do this, you know, feel dumb if you end up doing it. No, we do this, at least for me personally, I do this not in finance, but in other aspects of life that I probably should be more aware of. I understand the concept and even still I make mistakes. So it happens. It applies to medicine too, because, you know, particularly in academia, if you're a teaching residents or medical students or, you know, other medical professionals, how to do their job. One of the most common things that I experience is someone will come up to me and be like, hey, Jimmy, we're doing this case on this patient. What are we going to do? And I always look at them and I always ask, you know, maybe it's the philosopher in me, it's the Socratic method, but what do you want to do? And they're like, well... Answer a question with a question. You'd be real fun to work with. Yeah, that's right. People actually like it. So what ends up turning into is the person proves to themselves that when they stop and they don't just do what we always do because that's the way that we do it and they instead think through the problem and they think through the patient's medical disease, you know, comorbidities and the specific case that we're doing. And I start asking questions and like coaching them down the path. All of a sudden at the end of it, they're like, oh, like I could have figured that out if I just hadn't turned off my brain and just figure that we were going to do what we always do. And it's like, well, do you know why we do that? Because at the end of the day, you know, you're a physician, you're not a robot. You know, I experienced the same thing in, in the medical world and we're all prone to it. I'm prone to it too. It's, you know, going to find a colleague or a partner and saying, hey, I have this one case. I haven't done this in a while. What do we normally do? I do the same thing. We have to train us to be aware that this happens. That's really important because you're going to see this in so many areas of your life. Yeah, we're really process-driven type people. Majority of us at least are. So there's a couple other examples we can give you. So I think that really that 2008 um, you know, bust, the housing essentially market example with it. Do you want to give that one or you want me to? Well, you know, I understand a little bit about it. You can fill in the details, sure. but you know, it's 2008, 2009, you know, people started basically getting home loans from subprime mortgages when they maybe wouldn't have qualified for a different kind of home loan. But what that led to was people getting houses that they couldn't make the payments on. And eventually my understanding at least is that the, the market ended up crashing because of that kind of methodology for like lending the money out for the homes. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of reasons why it ended up kind of crashing on itself. But one of the things was the banks, they were greedy, right? And there wasn't a lot of laws around or at least enforced around who they could lend to. I mean, basically, if you were alive, they would loan you whatever you wanted. Not to pick on anyone, but you know, someone making 40000 a year could go take out a loan that they had absolutely no ability to pay after the teaser rates were through. And they were able to not only just get one, which would cause them issues, but, but many. And everyone around was flipping real estate. People that I know have no business owning a rental property, owned multiple rental properties and over leveraging themselves and overextending. And so everyone thought, well, more millionaires are made in real estate than, than any other profession, which is true. But they thought I can be that. I can do that. And I, I do think everyone can if you are diligent and not over leveraging and, and are being intelligent about it. But everyone was talking about this. There was kids in college 
buying houses. Seriously, I have friends and they're smart guys. With no income? No income. Able to buy housing. Now, one of them actually did fairly well during this time because he was an agent. So his income was selling houses. And then every time he'd sell a couple, he'd turn around and invest it back in, which is fine. At least he was trying to be somewhat diligent, but it was just way overinflated. But as the market started to move south, everyone panicked. And then everyone was trying to sell or everyone was getting foreclosed on because they were in that herd mentality on the way up and were over leveraging through it. So I think pretty much every bubble or crash in the stock market, you know, it's really caused by this herd mentality. How do you, if I'm, you know, somebody that is considering real estate or investing in the market, how do I avoid these bubbles? How do I avoid that herd mentality? Do you just never invest in individual stocks? How do you go about that? Yeah. So good question. And I will say like right now, this is not investment advice, right? This is just general in nature, but in reality, think long-term, think macro, right? Don't think what's going to happen this month, this year, or in the next year or two. Don't worry about the trade wars or you know who's getting or not getting impeached or whatever's happening currently in the market with interest rates. Like It's all noise. Think macro, think long-term, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down. Your investment philosophy should be thinking in that long horizon. Everyone listening to this is probably in their early 30s to mid 40s. So let's just make a gross generalization of that. Your investment philosophy should be 30 years long. There's no reason. It should not be 30 minutes and or 30 seconds, which is what our brains do. Mm-hmm. That's not investing. That's speculation at that point. Sure. Right. So, yeah, which I don't do. So, we shouldn't invest in things that we plan on selling tomorrow. I'm horrible at it. I'm so bad. I've even read a couple books thinking I'd get better. Right. Didn't get better. Just playing poker. Uh, obviously, we've talked about index investing and active investing versus passive investing and why passive is much better. There is a small piece of me that I have kind of what I call the lottery fund. And I like to buy individual securities because I want to quote unquote gamble with it. And I'm not talking a lot of money. I'm talking like no more than a thousand dollars in a position. And I literally do it just for fun. This is not an investment philosophy. I might as well go to Vegas and roll the dice, but I'm having fun. And this is the way that I, as a nerd, kind of nerd out and have fun. I think that's actually really important. So the distinction there is you're being intentional. What is that money for? And I've had these same conversations with friends of mine at work who are invested in uh, individual stocks and you know they'll, they're constantly checking their stuff and telling me how excited they are that X went up and Y went up. Although it's kind of funny because they never mention things that go down. Uh, but why would you? <laughs> but, you know, I was asking them, like, is that money that you're planning to use to become financially independent or to retire or to fund your kid's college education? Like, what is that money for? Is it just for fun? It's kind of interesting because sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's just for fun. I just kind of enjoy doing it. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. But then sometimes they'll say, no, like, I'm planning on using this for retirement. And they're like 40. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Like, that's not a very long timeline. Like, if that goes down next week, are you going to sell it? You know, we've talked about that previously, the idea of like checking things. But in a way, a lot of times following the herd, like, oh, Oh, have you seen what X is doing lately? And you're like, you have to just have to get in. Everyone else is doing it. And it's like, well, that's not really a reason to invest, right? The one I, I see all the time with physicians is, well, if it's good enough for Jimmy, it's good enough for me. If it's good enough for Jane, it's good enough for me. And it's like, no, 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 please stop thinking that way. Even though it's a small population, it's not hundreds of people or thousands of people, like you're talking about one person. But in reality, most of our decisions, whether they're finance or not, are influenced by our friends, our family, and people around us. And I did that show with Nick True with like, you are the five people you hang out with the most. Essentially, your behaviors are the same. And I was reading something, this is a while back, and I'm, I'm 
probably going to butcher this one, but being a contrarian is, is the equivalent of like breaking your arm repeatedly. Sure. It causes a ton of anxiety, pain, or fear. And the reason that you go against the herd and be a contrarian, or the reason why you wouldn't, I should say, go against the grain on this, is that you have the fear of being wrong when everyone else is right, or just the fear of just naturally going against someone else's idea or thought. So as we're kind of rounding out, you know, this idea of herd mentality. So I, I have one question for you, Ryan, before we move on. Yeah. I should have warned you about this. Why would you? <laughs> Why would I? So my question is like, what about if the people are paying devil's advocate, right? You know, they're, they're in the, you know, this physician finance space or they read about personal finance. They've heard all about passive index funds. Like, what would you say to those people to say, well, like, don't you feel like that's a bit of an echo chamber? There's lots of publication and noise about index funds and how amazing they are. And is that not following the herd? I mean, following the other people that are doing that just because it seems like the right thing to do. Like, is that a bubble? I've heard people ask that before too. The overall like market size and trading of what goes into the passive versus active strategy is still super tiny compared to the overall vast market. So no. And the way I kind of originally in my head have been thinking about why all of a sudden all these index funds are becoming free to trade or zero expense ratio, right? Mm -hmm. I think at some point Vanguard is going to be like, you know what? F it. We're going to pay you money to put into these things. Not a lot, of course, but there's going to be no expense ratio and it's actually going to give you a 0.1% return in addition to it that they're just going to fund because they can make money other ways. Just to get you that to that company. Just to get you there, right? Because the active people who are day trading and the, the algorithms and these supercomputers that are trading in and out of the markets and all that is funding. Well, all this index stuff, it's just really easy. Like it'll all be free. Mm. Businesses aren't in here to, to just give us a bunch of free stuff. Right. So if they're not making any money on index investing, where are they making all their money? So if we are a herd, we're a very small herd. It's a very tiny herd that's gaining probably momentum, but at the same time- Lemmings. Yeah. Lemmings just jumping off the cliff, which are real animals, which still blows my mind as well. Look it up. Or just check the show notes on thephysicianphilosopher.com because we'll put a video there of lemmings for fun. It's going to be great. Just jumping off. Sad, but it's nature. (laughs) Oh, man. Well- you know, I, I was thinking, you know, even like camping out for like the latest iPhone. I, I don't go to the mall, but I was there with a bunch of the dads married to doctors. They were getting together and they're going to have some drinks at, a, at the bar there that's um, at the UTC mall here in town. And I walked by the Apple store and I saw like this gigantic line. I was like, what the heck is going on? Now, clearly not up to my tech. I didn't know the Apple iPhone 4000 is coming out, but there were like hundreds of people there waiting. Now, I am totally going to confess that when the first Apple phone iphone came out i did wait in line because i really wanted one i've not waited in line since for that but to me it was like you had to get in you had to get the latest and newest otherwise you felt left out you weren't part of that click that herd and you know our gaming systems you know when a new xbox or playstation or something comes up you know people wait you still play atari oh man that means we're old (laughs) that was fun I love Frogger. Yeah. You know what I liked? The old school NES. They had a volleyball game and like they, they'd have their arms out like in a passing motion. But because this is 1987, uh, the only movement they had was basically a humping motion. It was hilarious. <laughs> and the graphics are horrible and grainy, but it's still one of my favorite games of all time. <laughs> That's hilarious. No. And I'm still very old because I'm talking about NES. At least I'm on a podcast doing it. So That's true. Makes it cool. I think. Uh, Maybe. <sighs> Appreciate uh, that. That's debatable. I'm going to say yes. All right. Let's go to okay. our journal club. So we're going to be discussing an article on thehappyphilosopher.com titled, If We All Stop Buying Stuff, 
will we destroy the world? I'm going to let you take the, the lead on this one. Yeah. So this is actually a really uh, interesting article. And it basically promotes the idea that, you know, we shouldn't just go along with other people and consume products. Like just because we live in a consumerism culture doesn't mean that we should buy stuff just to buy stuff. And the argument here is that we should be intentional about how we consume things. And when the Happy Philosopher started thinking about that, what it ended up resulting in was kind of a minimalistic movement in his life. So he became a minimalist and he's got some anti-herd mentality going on in this article. So he talks about, you know, how that movement, you know, being a minimalist kind of rages against this consumption idea. And some people will say, well, you know, if you don't consume things, our economy is just going to collapse. Uh, right. And so he kind of goes into that and, you know, how the minimalist movement is kind of anti herd is anti-consumer. He talks about how people are really kind of uncomfortable with that idea. And generally speaking, it's because we don't like change, which may be one of the other reasons that we like to follow the herd because we don't like to buck the gourds. Uh, we don't like to be different and, and change is often slow. So that's how it starts out. You know, but ultimately, I think that the overarching point was to argue against against the idea of just buying useless crap. He wanted us to be more intentional. And then he made several arguments, we can dive into these, about how the economy is not going to collapse because of minimalists, which uh, which is interesting. But Yeah, it's definitely not going to collapse because of minimalists. And I, I love the uh, the picture I got in my head was a bunch of people not buying anything. And like all of a sudden, we're all completely poor and like begging for bread at the corner bakery or something. But you know, it's all the stuff, this piles of stuff growing everywhere that we never consumed. Like the Great Depression happened because you stopped buying something on Amazon. Like, no, that's not going to happen. There's still plenty of people buying a ton of useless crap. Mm. Now, what's funny is you took it as anti-herd. And I guess he kind of phrased it that way. But I also looked at it was, this is like a mini herd starting this new movement of minimalism and it's gaining control. It's gaining popularity. It's like the fire movement, right? All of a sudden, this thing is everywhere. I could punt in and say, oh, it's spread, right? Mm. It's like the fire movement. Like People started taking notice. People started being interested. And all of a sudden, there's a thousand fire bloggers and <laughs> they get together at the Camp Fives and all these other things, which is great. I love that you know, movements are happening, but in the little, uh, you know, echo chamber here, it seems like there's a thousand of them, everyone's fire and, you know, trying to achieve fire and, and going to, in reality, it's like 0.0001% of the population even knows what the heck fire is. Fire. I mean, it's probably that small percentage of the population know what financial independence is. Yeah. It's crazy. It's I mean, sad. I got asked about that the other day. Someone's like, well, you know, why'd you start a blog? Aren't there lots of blogs out there? And I'm like, yeah, but I started talking to my residents, my medical students, and none of them knew this stuff, despite all of the material that's out there. And because we hear it all the time, we're in that echo chamber. We just assume that everybody knows this stuff. And there's actually a huge divide between the people that do and don't know this stuff. I mean, there's a huge number of people that don't know any of this and it's the overwhelming majority. Yeah. And that's okay. So if you're listening and you have friends that don't understand finance or, you know, really kind of just an ostrich shoving their head in the stand and not paying attention. Like, please share the podcast, you know, the blogs, everything that we're doing. That'll help them. It'll help you have smarter friends. You're around smarter people. And hopefully you're all changing financial habits in that. But I took this as, you know, as this post was kind of like a mini herd starting. I love the minimalism movement. I cannot say that I am part of it, but I am a huge fan. And I've said it like a thousand times on the show of spending money in a way that makes you happiest. Mm. And I think that if most people actually sat down, broke out what they spend money on and ranked it, I think a third of the stuff that people buy would never be bought. And it might even be more. And it's all of you listening, not like just some random phantom person off in the internet. I'm talking to all of you. Like if you actually sat down and thought, hmm, does this actually make me happy or did I just buy this for some weird reason and can't actually explain it, but 
felt good doing it. I actually have people do something similar. So when they're not convinced that spending money doesn't make them happy because it just seems like that should, many people are convinced that it does. I always tell them like, walk around your house, go check out your garage, you know, just walk around everything you own and look at stuff like expensive stuff, you know, the couches, the rug, the car, the whatever. And think about how happy you were when you initially bought that item and think about how happy it makes you now. Those are usually two very different things. Like you're like, oh my gosh, I was so excited when I bought that whatever. And you look at it now and you're like, well, I mean, it's it's just the rug that I walk on. Who cares that it's Persian or whatever? That's kind of how I teach people that idea. And on the other side, because extremes are bad in either case, but... On the other side, if, if you're like, oh, you know, that rug that you walk on, and if you're still very excited that that rug is there, that was a good purchase. Yeah, 100%. Because that's something that makes you happy, that you walk into your home and you see that and you get joy from it. Now, I'm not like, you know, Marie Kondo and be like, what sparks joy? I'm more talking like, do you generally, does that make you happy? Yeah. Like you look at it and you sit down on your couch and be like, oh, I'm so stoked. I bought this $6,000 goose down couch. It makes me feel so good. Then awesome do that. If your new truck, Jimmy, or my, my old, but now, you know, was new truck makes me feel like really, really good. I feel really safe in my car. Yeah. It's actually golf clubs. I get in it. I put, okay, there you go. Love them. I'll hit in the golf balls and, uh, you know, you like your golf clubs then cool that I put into the truck. Of course. Such a doctor. (laughs) The truck's great. But every time I get the kids in the car and I've got to like hoist them up because my truck's a little bit bigger than a five and a three-year-old. So I got to hoist them up, get them in their car seats, whatever. Like I close that door and it, you can hear how sturdy and how thick this thing is. Like I'm excited. Thud. Yeah, I'm excited because I know like if anyone hits me, it's them, not my kids that are going to be hurt. Now I don't excite for anyone getting hurt, but I know like my family's safe. And that was the whole motivation around my truck. So except for anybody hearing this that has children and this uh, truck commercial we got going on, installing car seats in those things, impossible. Not exactly. I spent like two hours installing three car seats when I bought that thing. I was so happy to bring the truck home. I was so angry two hours later. Yeah. Because you were still doing it. Impossible. To round out our journal club here. So there's a couple points that he made out and just quickly go through them. I think there's, you know, six, seven, whatever points that he kind of lines out on, you know, why the economy won't collapse if you become more minimalist. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of interesting. We've touched on a little bit of this already, but the idea that even though something feels like it's this big change, ultimately when people hear about new or novel ideas, less than 1% of them, he argues, are actually going to incorporate anything that's challenging or would change your life in a substantial way. So he said that's point number one. Point number two, he says the economy isn't fragile. You know, the economy is just going to keep on being the economy and that when you stop buying stuff, it's not going to all of a sudden melt or go away, uh, which we discussed a little bit as well. And then he talks about our adaptability, which which I think is interesting because in an article that kind of tied into this herd mentality, it was interesting to think about, do we adapt? Like, do we do we even notice that we adapt or is the change so slow that we just don't even notice it and we just kind of go with the tide? He goes on to, through several other arguments, but I guess the other ones to highlight uh, from the happy philosopher are that most of his money goes towards essential needs, he says. So since he's a minimalist, it goes towards housing and transportation and stuff like that. And so that's probably true for most of us, that the vast majority of our money for most people probably goes towards things that we have to buy anyway. And so it's not really the consumerism of like just random products that supports the economy. I think that's kind of the argument he was making. Did you take something different from that? No, I did. And I think you've got to hear it's like stuff wears out, right? So, you know, even though you might become a minimalist, which we're not advocating you should or shouldn't be one, if, if you want to have at it, if not, and you think we're crazy, cool. But, you know, I think coming back to that approach of just spending a way that makes you happiest, making sure that you're doing the things that 
are going to progress you towards your financial goals and and allow you to enjoy it along the way. But you know, as stuff wears out, it's going to need to be replaced. Like it's not that you're. You, I know people do these, and I kind of think they're silly. Like the no spend months. Yeah. In November, I'm not going to spend any money. Well, cool. No spend November. Yeah. Have at it. Like if that makes you happy, go do it. I look at life short, and if I wanted to go out to dinner, I'm going to go out to dinner. Like it's already pre-planned, pre-budgeted, but I'm totally cool. If you want to go do that, the money's already sunk. Oh, it's already allocated. I already know what we spend and, and Taylor and I are pretty good. Like we've dialed in now our spending really well to where we still have, you know, a date night probably once a month. I wish it was more than that, but you know, we'll take the kids out to eat every couple, uh, you know, a couple times a month. We'll go do some fun stuff. I get coffees a couple times a week in the mornings, you know, and it's pre-planned. Like if I decide to get coffee four times this week, you know, versus three is that the end of the world? No, because it's already pre-budgeted. There'll be a week where I don't go get it at all, but I know generally what we're spending and that's where we want to get everyone. You don't need to nerd out and know to the penny what you're spending. Right. You just have to have a good idea and know that like, oh, my credit card bill needs to be $4,000 every month. Right. Right. I'm just using a random number every month, $4,000. And if my credit card bill is 4,400, what did I do different that caused me to spend 10% more? Oh, it was like the one time like insurance payment went through. I already knew that was coming. So I'm going to, you know, move money from my sinking fund up to pay for it. But if you're like, oh crap, I spent 7,000, you know, then you've got some issues, right? And you got to kind of dig in and find out why. But if you can get to the point where you're like, hey, I know my credit card bill is about this and you're taking care of all your other stuff, like you're good. And if you want to become a minimalist and spend less, yeah, you know, or, you know, the lean fire, the guys that live off, you know, 10,000 bucks a year, have at it. I would hate that more than pretty much anything. I'd be like, what's the whole point of this? Like, you love that. I'm more the other side of like, <laughs> try to out earn it than to cut back <laughs> some, right? Pick up a, a side hustle that you enjoy doing. Find a job that you love doing that'll pay you more money. That's where I'd rather be. Mm. I think there's a good balance. I don't think extremes in anything are bad, right? So if I just was like, I'll just out earn my crazy amounts of $20,000 a month spending, well, that's probably a bad way to go about that. But if it's like, I'm going to spend $2,000 a month and eat you know, beans and rice, it's probably also pretty uncomfortable. So yeah, you're more on the earn more side, not on the spend less side. Well, we're going to make sure to tag the Happy Philosopher, which is at thehappyphilosopher.com. Quickly, you know, assuming that you're following up and want to read this. I actually really like this post, so I think you guys should go read it. And if you aren't following us, you know what you need to do. Go follow us at Financial Residency. And what is your thing again? Just come subscribe to my blog. Just visit the blog, subscribe, and get an email once a week or every time a post comes out. Just go to thephysicianphilosopher.com. Let's forget his social exists for a second. But anyway, come hang out with us. So... You know, we really appreciate you guys being here. We'd love feedback on the show. If there's something that you'd want to hear, whether it's behavioral or just finance in general, we're happy to kind of dive in. We're pre-planning a lot of stuff that's coming out. So it's been really fun, but uh, have a great week. See you guys on Friday when I have Casey on talking to our financial health assessment and you will hear from Jimmy next Wednesday. Take care, everyone.